Hi, everybody. Uh, let's say a blessing for studying Torah, and then I'll tell you what we're up to. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, whose presence fills the universe, who gives us mitzvot, including this wonderful mitzvah of engaging in words of Torah. This Torah portion is called Akev. Um, Akev means because. I think it's a great title for a, for a portion or a story. And it's long. It, again, it's uh, part of chapter seven all the way through part of um, uh, chapter uh, 11 of, of Deuteronomy, or maybe all the way to the end of chapter 11. So eight, nine, it's, it's four, more than four chapters and a lot of oratory, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, goes on in this part. And I'm not going to try to cover it all in our lesson, but I do want to say that, uh, so this continues Moses' oration. And uh, he is remind, he's bouncing back and forth between reminding people how they're supposed to behave and what happened in the past. Uh, in, this in this case, he spends a lot of time talking about the golden calf episode and you know how terribly they failed when he was up on the mountain and he reprimands them and he cajoles them and he admonishes them and he exhorts them. And that's a lot of what's going on here. And it's, it's, if we had the time, I would make our way through the entire portion to get a sense of the flow. We could certainly talk about the psychology of Moses or the choices Moses makes of what during the journey he chooses to focus on over the last 40 years. It's interesting to me. But what I want to do in our limited time is just focus on one literary piece, chapter eight, which uh, has some very compelling, famous passages in it, and also raises up the deepest questions of why are we, what is this journey called life? You know, what's going on here? Um, and so I'm going to ask Gwen to put up chapter eight of Deuteronomy. And we're going to take our time and your comments and questions are always welcome. Uh, putting them in the chat or getting my attention via the chat seems to be the best way to do that. Um, there we go. Chapter eight. Kol ha-mitzvah asher hayom Tishmarun lasot, Lamantichion urvitem uvatem virishtem, Eta aretz asernishbadunai laboteche. All this commandment that I command you today, you are to take care and observe, in order that you may live and become many and enter and possess the land that Yudhevavhe swore to your ancestors. Uh, you are to bear in mind, and this is the first line that I want us to uh, take, kind of enter into. You are to bear in mind the route that Yudhevave had you go these 
40 years in the wilderness. Um, I would change that. V'zacharta et kol haderech. I would change the translation. Remember the entire route, or you could say, remember the long way um, that uh, the... Well, change it to the JPS translation? The JPS is the contemporary one? This is the JPS. Uh, yeah, let's look at that one. This is the same one that our, uh, uh, our Chumash uses in a modified form. Remember the long way that the Eternal, your God, has made you travel in the wilderness these past 40 years in order to test you by hardships and to learn what was in your hearts. Oh, there it is. Whether you would keep God's commandments or not. So I never fail to want to spend time with this verse. So we are the children of Israel. We're on the journey through the wilderness. That's our life, right? When you view this document as a um, mythic or spiritual text, then we're taking the journey and we're on the journey from, remember the trajectory, from enslavement, from darkness, from degradation, from a lack of a sense of connection to all that is, that's Egypt. And our life journey is on a journey towards a land where we will be connected to God. It'll be flowing with milk and honey. It will be a land, according to the Torah's instructions, filled with justice and righteousness and concern for everyone, a, a life of dignity, a life of, from degradation to dignity, from bondage to freedom, from um, um, uh, darkness to light. This is the spiritual journey that's represented by this 40 years of wandering, right? Remember, it's not a straight journey. There's just no way to get there from here on a straight line. If you know anyone who accomplished that, let me know. Uh, because almost by definition, there can't be light without, by definition, there can't be light without darkness. You can't recognize dignity without having lacked it. You can't recognize freedom without having lost it. You can't know the light. And so by definition, the journey to the promised land that we're all on, which we sense, right? We all intuit there is a, there's a, um, a way things should be, could be, can be. We can imagine it. Why can't we do it? Right? That's the journey. So that's why I love seeing this line. Ah, Blaise said, not unlike the journey of persecuted immigrants to the US and the journey of black migrants to the North and West from the South. Correct, that's right. Any collective liberation journey is um, a journey that has um, many, many obstacles in it. And as I'm relating to you, any individual journey is the same. So that's one of the reasons. And Roni says, but why don't we realize we are already there and the journey is just a play? 
We do realize that, Roni, sometimes, right? I have those moments of graced enlightenment. And even for periods of the older I get, I walk in that space more than when I was younger. And I hope that's true for all of us. I hope, I hope all of us have learned that, you know, the promised land isn't a physical destination. It's a state of being, a state of consciousness. Um, and your question is the human question. If we know it's there, what's our problem? Right? Why can't we hold on to it? Uh, why can't we just dwell in that? And certainly when we think of someone who we describe as enlightened being is someone who's walking with us, but dwelling in the promised land at the same time. So I understand, and I don't have a good answer, Roni. If I did, ha, ha, if I had a good answer, I'd be dwelling there all the time, but I, I continually wind up losing my way and having to figure out how to, in the metaphor of the Torah, uh, continue to follow the cloud of the divine presence, which is guiding me. Um, and then I forget, I rebel, I get selfish, I get tired. Uh, sometimes the hard stuff is just so hard. <sighs> so. Um, Jonathan? Yes. Uh, it, it's Roberta, hi. Hi, Roberta. Um, I'm, I'm just like musing or wondering, um, so why did God want to learn what was in our hearts or why does God want to learn? Right. And, and, and it says that in the same sentence, it says God's calling all the shots. God made it the long way. God made it 40, you know, so we have on the one hand, this totally all knowing God. And mm -hmm. yet there's something that God wants to know differently, uh, through us experiencing hardship. Uh, and I just think that's so profound and wondering what your thoughts are. Right, well, for me, the speculation uh, of why there is physical, why consciousness ah. takes, um, so some of you may not, may not think in these ways, but I'll tell you how I think about it. I think that consciousness pervades the universe that uh that that is my that is my um deep sense so if consciousness pervades the universe and therefore pre precedes creation then consciousness must have a desire you know when we say may it be god's will will is an old-fashioned word for ratzon ratzon is desire means, may it, in our contemporary language, may it be God's desire. Ani rotse, I want, right? Uh, so ratzon is wanting. So, so if we think of God as the pervasive consciousness of the universe, um, then, uh, and, and Barb, I want to get to your comment too, because it's beautiful. Um, uh, as the pervasive consciousness of the universe, there's something about that consciousness that wants to be in relationship, wants to be known, wants to know itself. And if you are an undifferentiated unity, you don't have that opportunity for expanding knowingness. And so you, 
in according according to the Jewish metaphors, you 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 um, um, reduce yourself that this divine consciousness and manifest in life expressing in the physical form. Um, that's what I think of as the consciousness we experience. We are manifestations of universal consciousness, but in a limited physical form. But that gives us the opportunity to turn our consciousness towards the infinite and give God what God wanted, which is relationships, love. Uh, but there was, and I think the Torah reflects this in its narrative, in a sense, the universal consciousness didn't know what was going to happen once physicality, you know, became the, our vehicle for manifestation. And so, you know, God, it says in the story of Noah, God regretted making humankind, but God loved humankind, but they're such a mess. And this is, I've talked about this a lot, this is the reflection that the rabbis, traditional classic Jewish teachings have over and over again in these incredibly poignant, compelling, ironic stories they tell about the ambivalence uh, between God and humanity. Um, uh, that, and so God has to learn how to tolerate us while we stumble along. And so the rabbis always like to say that angels, that is divine manifestations of consciousness, um, don't walk, they stand before God. In other words, they're not on a journey. They are not on a journey. Human beings are walkers. Right. And so uh, the, the rabbis say, what humans can know in our struggle, angels can never know. And so we're actually in many ways blessed to be given this journey in physical form. Uh, and I agree with that. Um, the, 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 remember the long way that the Lord your God has made you travel in the wilderness these past 40 years, that he might test you by hardships to learn what was in your hearts. Um, in, in other words, this is an explanation in a beautiful metaphor for why life feels like such a trial. Its purpose is to refine our hearts to expand our minds, to take all the life experience we have and um, purify it, refine it, um, process it, digest it, so that we can learn what is in our hearts. Um, whether we would, and again in the Jewish metaphor, whether we would keep God's commandments or not. God's commandments are not, in the Jewish understanding, some random set of rules, which is, I know how many of us experienced it growing up. It's like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? But in the Jewish spiritual system, each mitzvah is an opportunity to refine your consciousness. Each time you say a blessing, each time you put food in your mouth, each time you treat someone ethically, each time you pray, each time. So the commandments are our uh, textbook, life book, as it were, for, in Jewish terms, passing the curriculum. <laughs> it's, it, it's our material that we're working with. Uh, let's see, I'm going to read a couple of comments. Barb said, even as parents, we want to know what's in the hearts of our children. 
but we must also be disciplinarians. Exactly. Um, the favored metaphor <clears throat> for God and Israel, which means the creator and humanity, remember this document was written by a specific group of people, uh, our ancestors, and uh, so um, we can expand that idea wider. Um, uh, is that God is the parent or teacher, and we are the children or students. The other metaphor that I'll talk about in a minute is that we are married to God. That's the idea of covenant, mutual covenant, the, the, um, the idea that we have responsibilities towards one another. That metaphor is crucial. The other prime metaphor is that we are like parents and children. Oh, God is parent and we are children where we have responsibilities to each other, but you're always going to be my kid, right? I'm, again, forgive me if there have been some very painful parent-child relationships in this group, but the idea of the parent-child relationship is that you're always my kid. And therefore, you can't, even if you stray to the ends of the earth, I'm going to take you back again because love is the, the, the love, love is the um, underlying um, uh, um, foundation of our relationship. Uh, but here we are, parents, anyone who's been a parent or a teacher or has worked with younger people uh, or as a mentor understands that we grow through challenges, that the best teachers we had are the ones who could, the, when we're learning how to swim, if we were blessed with a good teacher, they stood a little farther away and then a little farther and then a little farther, right? Until you were swimming on your own. Um, but you also have to teach, teach the person how to swim. There's a beautiful saying, famous saying in the Talmud that a parent has responsibility to teach their kid Torah and to teach them how to swim. Um, so, so if we are helicopter parents and we don't let the kids rise to their challenges, we don't let them go out and socialize and fight and figure out how to make up, if we monitor all their activities, we're not being the kind of parents that our children need. If we're the kind of parents who just say, eh, you know, handle it yourselves, and uh, that we're not that's necessarily the balance either. And of course, every child is different. Um, what I did with one, my one daughter uh, was ridiculous with my other daughter. As, so it's an incredibly dynamic, ever-moving, ever-changing um, uh, uh, relationship. But the disciplinarian part, um, it says in the next verse, uh, uh, oh no, where's the one about, about discipline? Uh, uh, he subjected you. Well, we'll get to that verse. Okay. So uh, we all understand what it means to be a disciplinarian uh, in a loving way. Paul says to create unions, not just snapping your fingers, more like a potter with clay, a baker with dough, takes time, a process, 40 years for life experience of a people to manifest its consciousness a spiritual roadmap to become a tzaddik, 
beautiful phrases, Paul, because, you know, God is a potter. In Genesis, God takes the clay, makes it into a human form, and then breathes the breath of life into it. So that is, you know, it doesn't say how long it took God to make each finger. And each, what a beautiful image. I've never thought about that. Think about God as this, this cre creating and this beautiful, all the love and skill and attention devoted to making that form. Roni says, do you believe that seeing God in yourself, realizing that your God is true self-knowledge? Well, Roni, my answer to that is that's a little, that, that's a, a, a um, uh, yes, but. Because, as we're going to get to in the rest of this chapter, um, the problem is that if you realize you are God and you don't realize that everyone else and everything else is God also, can lead you on a road to self-delusion or arrogance. No, no, no. Of course, you are the same as everyone else. Everyone else is God as is you. And is that the goal of self-knowledge, self-realization, which in a way is our reason for being here as individuals is self-knowledge and realizing that I am you, you I am, I am that, that I am. Yes, Roni, I agree with that. Um, thank you. Also, as you're, uh, the aspect of not becoming arrogant, not becoming attached, not wanting to possess, is the guru in you, the rabbi in you that teaches you that you and I are God and one. But the separation is what, why we need our rabbis and our gurus. Thank you. Yes, and the Jewish way of expressing that is that God made us all in the divine image. So that, thank you, very well said. Uh, Paul said, parent to child, who becomes a parent to a child, a kind of lineage, if you will. Challenge for God is to give his children room to grow and thus mistakes and still be protective as Winnicott, the famous uh, psychotherapist, psych psychiatrist describes, to discover and experience the divine that is in you. Yes, thank you everyone. So the other thing I wanna say about the metaphor of being tested is that if you can embrace this metaphor, it gives the struggles in your life a sense that they have a purpose. Right? If they all just seem like hardship for no purpose, we're doomed as souls in a certain way. Uh, we bear it as long as we can, and then we give up the ghost, right? Um, but it shrinks us, it hardens us, it makes us, it, 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 it crushes us. So the beautiful thing for, one of the beautiful things for me about this passage is that, oh, the Torah's, Moses, the Torah's trying to teach us that there's a reason for our struggles. And it's to find out what is in our hearts. I... I can accept that as a game plan. Um, it, gives, it gives my life a sense of direction and purpose. And um, 
it's very dangerous, as you all know, to tell somebody else that in the moment of their grief, right? In fact, it's stupid. You don't say to somebody else, oh, yes, this crap is happening to you for a reason, and uh, you should be grateful or some, some baloney like that. You don't turn to someone in their moment of struggle and do that. You turn and give them advice. You turn to them in their moment of struggle and reach out your hand, for goodness sake. You understand what I, I mean? Um, uh, but in terms of how I witness my own life, I want this to be always present with me. Here's the next challenge. Oh, an opportunity to learn and grow and awareness and love. What a great mission statement. To learn, how, learn what is in our hearts, says Joshua. Develop emotional intelligence. Very nice. Because as some of you may know, the word lev in the Torah, heart, is understood to be the seat of consciousness. So it's the heart mind. Um, what we put up here in our, in our, in our brains, the, the, the Torah worldview calls the heart the seat of consciousness. So to learn what is in our hearts is a broad understanding. To learn, so I would say emotional intelligence, absolutely. Blaise says, to learn who we are becoming. We are becoming who, what we are becoming. And Susan says, and this should be our refrain, it can be really hard sometimes when we're in the midst of a struggle, which is the truth. And that's why I come back to this passage for myself frequently. So thank you, Susan. Let's read on a little because the next verse is, is, a, is one of the most famous in the Torah. God subjected you to the hardship of hunger and then gave you manna to eat, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, in order to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. That's where the phrase comes from. And I never tire also of coming back to this phrase. But that a person may live on anything that the Lord decree. Okay, let me get back to Roberta's question and then we'll come back to that. Can you say more about Lev being the seat of consciousness? Gives new meaning to Pharaoh's hardened or uncircumcised heart. I can't say much more than that is the conventional wisdom about Lev in the Torah, that it's, it's the place of, um, that it's more than what we think of as our hearts in our more um, uh, um, physicalized uh, understanding of where bodily functions happen. So you can take all of the thing, well, that's the thing, you'll find that the word Lev it says, it'll say, and you will know in your hearts. But we have the same metaphor in English. When we say we know it in our hearts, that's a different level of knowing than knowing it in our minds. That's what we're talking about here. Um, so I think that's, a, that's, that's the right English metaphor to carry us there. So here it is. A per man does not live by bread alone. Let's stay with that for a moment. So part of the test, apparently, part of all these tests, you're hungry and then you get this manna to eat, this that you'd never known 
remember, we haven't, I don't think we've discussed manna, but it means, for those who don't know, it means in Hebrew, the people called it manna because, I'm sorry, not manna, in Hebrew it's man. The people called it man, can, can, is that word in here? Uh, yeah, 8-3, would you highlight um, man? There it is. Thank you, haman. Man means, what is it? Um, so, the, so manna, the people name it manna because they have no idea what it is. It's like, it's like calling it whatchamacallit because you don't know what it is. It's like, what is this? Or to be less, you know, cute, it's witnessing something and being amazed. So manna is spiritual food. Manna is an amazing part of the Torah's uh, metaphorical mm, map because the manna is 40 years of having to be amazed every morning when you go out and see it lying on the ground. So your sustenance is not just physical, right? There's something else that God is teaching us that we have to nourish in ourselves in order to make it to the promised land. So I would think manna, the test here that man does not live, person does not live by bread alone, certainly, but on, uh, and the rest of the verses, anything that the Lord decrees, everything that comes out of the mouth of yod heh vav adam vivifies, makes more alive the human being. Let's see, Paul said, brain takes a rational snapshot of reality, heart has the total experience of reality. Thank you. Roberta says, in Buddhism, bodhicitta is translated as awakened heart mind. Oh, same word for heart and mind. Sounds like in Torah also. Yes, I think so, Roberta. So my friends, we, if this is a spiritual uh, um, um, guidebook, then we're being taught also that the 40 years of wandering that we're on is to test us the hunger what is this hunger that is then fed with one with what with amazement right how do you walk in the light how do you transcend all the hardships one way for me that's certainly been i guess i'm I'm benefiting from the many decades of working at it, is to remember to walk outside and look and say, what is it? And be nourished by that awareness. That's one of the ways I think about the manna. And if you remember about the manna, if you try to hoard the manna, you could only, it, it says about the manna in, in the other places in the Torah where it describes it at length. It says that each person could go out and, whether, and collect it. And however much they collected, it turned out would be enough for that day. But if they tried to keep it overnight, in the morning it would be putrid. Makes sense to me. You know, it's like, you you have to 
you have to go out every day again and be amazed and wondrous all over again. Yesterday's inspiration is going to get stale. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, it's going to get stale. We have to do this all the time. Wendy says, it seems that this is part of the mutual relationship between yud heh vav and us. God supplies the opportunity for renewed hope every day, and we need to nurture it. Well said, Wendy. So how do we, how do we survive all the tests? Of course, we have to tackle them in every way we can, but there's a sustenance that we can draw from life that also allows us to navigate better, stronger, on our feet, um, keep walking, keep our perspective. All the metaphors of the wilderness journey, I adore. Uh, show up and keep breathing. Rule number one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Joshua says, back to the parent-child metaphor. Is God still growing and evolving? To a young child, a parent seems fully grown and evolved. But as the child grows, they come to understand that their parents are not fixed, but also learning, growing, and evolving. Really well said, Joshua. I'm right with you. I see relationship with God as being a developmental um, process for every person where our child consciousness sees our parents as fixed, having always been there, they just are. And if we don't, and then that applies to our understanding of God as children, because that's what we've got. Um, and then if we do not grow and continue to expand our understanding, um, then we get stuck with essentially a kindergarten understanding of the universe. And not to belabor it, but there are, there are many religious outlooks that are juvenile. Um, and then, but in order to abandon that sense of, of um, in order to let go of that sense of uh, protection that we want as children, that takes um, courage and it takes commitment and devotion to be able to accept a universe and the name of God, remember, is I am becoming what I am becoming. That's the name of God, yod heh vav -Heh. So yod heh vav -Heh is never static. yod heh vav -Heh's name is a mysterious verb. Um, and so I consider that to be, as you say, a maturing understanding of our relationship uh, with a growing and evolving in universal consciousness as well. Um, I love the way you wrote that, Joshua. Thank you. I'm going to read it again. To a young child, a parent seems fully grown and evolved. But as the child grows, they come to understand that their parents are not fixed, but also learning, growing, and evolving. Yes. Verse four, the clothes upon you did not wear out, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. And bear in mind that the eternal, your God, disciplines you just as a father or a parent disciplines their child. 
So again, the Moses is saying, these challenges you faced, uh, they have a purpose. You know, it's important to say also that not everyone, unfortunately, tragically, uh, survives their tests. Um, and I don't mean physically survives. You know, we're all going to die um, at some point. I'm talking about uh, being able to survive without being broken psychologically or spiritually. Um, so I, that's what we're, that's what, I feel like that's what we're here for each other is to help each other navigate those tests and find a sense of purpose and meaning. And it's very hard to do alone. Roberta says, also Moses is learning, growing, evolving, coming to peace with, taking into his heart that he will not enter the land with the people. Thank you. Blaze says, back to the relationship with parents and God evolves. So does the relationship with oneself, I think, anyway. Well said, I think so too. I think so too. Within all of this, we are on a journey. We are on a journey and the Torah is clear. Uh, I think, I think the, the, the strange fact that the Torah ends without entering the promised land. And then in the Jewish tradition, we then start reading it again from the beginning is telling the same thing. It's the journey, not the arrival. This is where it all happens. When we get there, I'll look forward to seeing you there. And uh, let's have tea, you know. But in the meantime, this is it. This is where the action is. We're placed into consciousness, Breshit, in the beginning. Consciousness was imbued into flesh. And then the journey begins. And the arrival at the promised land is not part of the Torah. It's all the journey from the first breath. And that's, there's a famous um, understanding that the Torah ends, you know, at the end of the very end of the Torah, which we'll get to in just a few weeks, God says, and God draw, drew the breath. I'm going to, you don't have to go to it, Gwen. I'm just going to read it to folks. Um, here's the very end of the Torah. Uh, Ascend these mount heights of Abarim, says God to Moses. Most, after Moses had finished teaching all these words to Israel, God said, ascend these heights and view the land, which I am giving to the Israelites as they're holding, and you shall die on the mountain you are about to ascend and shall be gathered to kin. Oh, that's, verse, that's chapter 32. The very end is, forgive me, uh, here it is. The very end of the Torah. So Moses, the servant of the eternal, died there. 
from the, at the command of the Eternal, and God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses. Uh, and um, that's, that's how the Torah ends. So the Torah begins with, uh, um, the, with the breath of life and ends with it being drawn out of us. So we can really, we can actually, I think, really understand the Torah as about being the journey from birth to death. Um, for each of us, collectively. And so we put ourselves in that journey. Let's go back to the text now, Gwen, thank you. There we go. Therefore, keep the mitzvot, verse 6. Walk in God's ways and revere God. And now the tone changes, and it's worth spending a little time with this. Because this is a new, a new metaphor. For the eternal your God is bringing you into a good land, a land, and another teaching, by the way. This now is a new lesson. That was the lesson, now a new lesson from Moshe. The eternal your God is bringing you into a good land, verse seven, a land with streams and springs and fountains issuing from plain and hill. Just visualize this, everyone. A land of wheat and barley, of vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat food without stint, where you will lack nothing a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you can mine copper. And when you have eaten your fill, give thanks to the eternal your God for the good land which God has given. Take care lest you forget the eternal your God and fail to keep God's commandments, rules, and laws which I have enjoined upon you today. When you have eaten your fill, and have built fine houses to live in, and your herds and flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold have increased, and everything you own has prosper, beware, lest your heart grow haughty, and you forget the eternal your God, who freed you from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its seraph serpents and scorpions, a parched land with no water in it, who brought forth water for you from the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had never known, in order to test you by hardships, only to benefit you in the end. And you say to yourselves, my own power and the might of my own hand have won this wealth for me, you must remember that it is the eternal your God who gives you the power to get wealth in fulfillment of the covenant that God made an oath with your ancestors, as is still the case. If you forget 
the eternal your God and follow other false gods to serve them and bow down. I warn you, you will perish. So, I want to go back to Gail's comment before we enter this. Gail said, I really cannot accept that all misfortune is a learning experience. Some suffering is simply too cruel to be put in a context of the loving parent offering a possibility for growth. I understand, Gail. I do. And I would never, ever claim that someone else's suffering was good for them. Ever. <laughs> Forget about it. That's the height of arrogance. What do I know? However, as an operating system for my own experience, if I am elevated enough and clear enough to say, take pain, and I've been blessed not to suffer from serious chronic pain, and investigate it, rather than just suffer, maybe, maybe, I can, it can be transforming for me. I don't know. But I do want to be clear that uh, I understand why you cannot accept that, and I don't either, uh, except as, as I said, an operating principle that I would like to apply to myself, okay. um, if possible. Do you want to say something, Gail? No, no, not really. It's okay. Okay. I don't like it as a theological principle, okay? Right. I don't treat it as a theological principle. I treat it as a way, because I don't, for me, theology is all poetry. Mm -hmm. So when you say, the, I, I don't practice theology per se, because the idea that I could come up with systematic language to describe the workings of the infinite cosmos um, is absurd to me with my limitations. So I, I think of it more as um, uh, metaphorical wisdom that might help me navigate life. And if the metaphor doesn't hold for you or has its limitations, then let it go, definitely. Okay. Uh, Thank you. The last letter of the Torah is Lamed, says Rabbi Ellen, and the first letter is Vet. It ends with Yisrael, Lamed and begins with the letter Bet Bereshi, which spells heart, which is one of my favorite things. And Ellen's also reminding us that what we just read, when you have eaten your fill, when you have eaten and are satiated, then bless the infinite, your God, um, uh, um, is what, how, how we understand why we Jewish people say Berkat Hamazon, the grace after meal. So we have blessings before and then after uh, we eat. And I've thought about that a lot because when you're hungry and the food is there, you say, thank God, right? But as soon as we're full, we might forget about that because we're satiated. So I love that we're supposed to bless and give thanks after we eat as a way to practice gratitude even when we're satiated. Uh, and I think that explanation fits in with this whole portion we just read, that once you've got your fine houses 
and you've got plenty of food and you're, and you're not cold or hot and everything's okay. Beware. Lest you then say, well, I've got it made. Hard work, determination, the American dream all came through because of, because of my efforts. Uh, that is the height of arrogance. Let me read a few more comments. Uh, Lev equals heart and consciousness, says Roni. Oneness with divine and each other, universal oneness. Paul says, if a person has cancer, you don't criticize them for poor diet, lifestyle, etc. Better be compassionate. Karma is karma. Um, I agree with you. I don't go to people and tell them what they did wrong to get in the, to, geez, people can be such, such dopes. Um, Deborah says, in my thinking, God does not bring the suffering. God is the path to meaning and strength. Nicely put. Roni says, Paul, why would you ever think of criticizing someone with cancer or any illness? He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't. Um, you may suggest how they can heal with lifestyle changes if they ask for your advice. But criticize or judge, no. Correct. I don't think Paul was disagreeing with you. Question, do things happen accidentally or is there a reason for everything that occurs? I think it depends on your point of view. Um, uh, my, um, those whom I know whose faith is completely devoted to saying, God is doing this, I accept it with complete, uh, there's a richness and a, a, a fullness in their spiritual life that is, can be really stunning. Um, the way I think about it is the way, um, I can't answer that question, obviously, but the way I think about it is the way we look back at our life and, um, or our experiences and say, you know, I couldn't be the person I am today if these things hadn't occurred to me, if these things hadn't happened to me, if I hadn't been through this and that and the other thing. I wonder if everything happened for a reason. Um, so I think it depends where you are on the journey. Um, Rob says, Obama, quoting Obama, if you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. It was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Right, well said. Joan says, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, you wouldn't believe some of the things people told me, probably thinking they were helping me. Basically, the idea was, what did you do to attract this cancer to you as if it was my fault? Amazing. I'd say thanks for sharing and walk away. Yes, Joan. Um, in our, I think we're very uncomfortable with peop other people's discomfort or illness, including our own, and we want to try to understand it and fix it. I'm so glad uh, you're here, Joan. Ellen said, gaining perspective on one's life is part of one of the benefits of becoming an elder. And Paul says, everything for a reason. Goal is to become more conscious of process, to understand why. Nicely said, Paul. Roni says, if you're a doctor, can you offer lifestyle changes, recommend healing strategies or holistic practitioners without being asked? Um, I don't want you to, if it's about me. I think 
we are all we all should be the captains of our um, of our decision making process. And so you can say, I know this stuff. Would you like me to make some suggestions? And the person says either yes or no. It might just be that they're having a day where they don't want to hear one more piece of advice. So no, unsolicited advice, in my opinion, is always a mistake. Um, you can always ask. Wendy says, a light aside, many years ago, you told my young students that manna could be ice cream and pizza. Oh, that's right. There's midrash. The, the rabbis are wondering, what is this manna? And they wax on about it. It could taste like anything you wanted it to taste like. And then, so it's fun to think about it as like this miracle food that would taste like anything you wanted. That's one of the things the rabbis say about it. Susan says, there were things that happened to me that at the time caused me suffering, but in retrospect, I can see they led to better things. In many cases, I think for many of us, that is the truth, right? Um, uh, and so um, when we're in the midst of suffering, if we can hold the possibility that on the other side of this, there will be gifts that we could never have understood or anticipated without going through what we were going through, then it allows us to bear our burden in a different way with some more strength and some more grace. That's going back to the phrase, remember this long journey I led you on in order to test you to learn what was in your hearts. If you can carry that as a kind of mission statement, it can carry you through the darker times in our lives. And uh, that's what I want to wish for all of us. Um, Roni said, very good, Susan, and holding the possibility of change is emotional intelligence. Yes, I agree, well said. So the second part of the chapter that we were reading then warns us against arrogance. So the first part is how to view the journey. The second part is, and when you're sitting pretty, the wheel of life, we know it's always turning, but we forget. So when we're on top of the Ferris wheel, it's like, hey, look what I did. And uh, the Torah warns us over and over again, at that moment, give thanks. When you're satiated, remember that it wasn't you who built the Ferris wheel or who happened to turn the switch that stopped it at the top. So you could, unless you're scared of heights, it's the wrong metaphor. Uh, uh, but I like it uh, because it's going to turn again. And um, so the next part of this chapter's warning is against arrogance, against thinking that it's the might of your hand, or okay, I'm gonna tell um, a Pete Seeger story to close. Pete Seeger liked to tell this joke. <clears throat> there are two maggots in a pile of dirt. And uh, they're, you know, they're 
They're friends. They talk every day. They're living in this pile of dirt. One day, a shovel comes along, picks them up along this pile of dirt. And as they're jiggling along with the shovel, one of them falls off into a crack in the sidewalk. The other one hanging on says, oh, what happened? Falls off into a pile of dog shit. Well, the one who falls into the crack in the pavement, he can't get out. There's no food. It's dark. He doesn't know what, what happened and he's barely surviving. The one who fell into the dog shit, oh, he eats, he grows fat and sleek and, mm. and one day he goes, hey, what happened to my friend? So he goes crawling along uh, out of his pile of dog shit, comes to the sidewalk, looks down in the crack and sees somebody and says, hey, who is that? And the maggot in the crack say, is that you brother? Yeah, that's me. What happened to you? You look terrible. And the maggot says, well, I don't know. I fell in this crack. There's nothing to eat. I can't get out. It's terrible. But you, brother, you're so sleek and fat. What did you do? How did that happen? Oh, brains and perseverance, brother. Brains and perseverance. So, <laughs> oh, Deborah says, today's class is profound. Oh, thank you for making this amazing wisdom to bring on the journey. And Rob says, Obama from the same speech that said, you didn't build that. The point is, is that when we succeed, we succeed because of our individual initiative, but also because we do things together. Barack Obama, love that. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for letting me share this Torah. I love this chapter of Torah.